Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. And our gospel comes to us from the book of Matthew, chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. Listen to the word of the Lord. Immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go on ahead to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But by this time, the boat, battered by the waves, was far off from the land, for the wind was against them. And early in the morning, he came walking toward them on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, saying, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news for everyone, or is it bad news for some? Before you answer, I want to ask you another question. What stops you from sharing the gospel with other people in your life? And I think the way we answer the first question has a direct relationship to how we answer the second question. If we say that the gospel is good news for all, then we must be sharing it with everyone we know. If we believe the gospel has the power to transform tragedy into salvation or defeat into victory, we would certainly want everyone to know. We don't even have to put it in such drastic terms. If we just believe that the gospel is a good feeling on a Sunday morning, a bit of comfort at a funeral or a nice message at a wedding, it would still be worth sharing, right? It would be shared as good news the same way we tell others about a promotion at work or romantic interest or one of our child's accomplishments. No matter the degree of good, if the gospel is in fact good news for all, then we should be sharing it with everyone. And lucky for you, these are just rhetorical questions. I already know how many of us will answer. We will say, yes, the gospel is good news for everyone. And even though I believe that, fear stops me from sharing the gospel with others in my life. I fear that I will be perceived as strange or pushy, or overly religious, or intolerant. Okay, 
So what if we took away all the things that cause you to fear? What if you had a captive audience of people who were receptive to your message, waiting to hear your proclamation of the gospel? Do you really believe that you would do it? And if you did it, what would you say? And I'm going to ask that you ponder these questions as we explore Paul's message to us. Paul has in mind a similar question in today's passage. He's concerned with teaching his readers the significance of Christ and the means by which salvation is received, a.k.a. what is the gospel and how do we share it with others? Chapter 10 of Romans marks a turning point in Paul's argument about God's chosen people, Israel. Paul's asking the question, is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news for Israel? Good news in the same way it is for non-Israelites. Because if it is, what do we do about the law that God gave to Israel that he did not give to anyone else? And Paul's answer is characteristically complex. In part because he can no longer speak of God's interaction with humanity as a purely Israelite affair. Until now, the paradigm of God's interaction with humanity was entirely mediated through the Mosaic Law, and that is the Ten Commandments plus hundreds of other laws that you can read about in the first five books of the Bible. Before Jesus came, Israelites were the only people chosen by God. That was it. They were given the law, Paul argues, as a consequence of God's choosing them. A good and divinely enacted consequence, and the purpose of the law was not to provide a set of rules that allowed adherents to earn their righteousness. It was not a system by which God's favor was rewarded through good acts. In fact, the law God gave Israel was a template for how to interact with creation, with other humans, and with God. And by following this template, Israel bore witness to the type of God they served, the type of human community God permitted, and the type of relationship humanity was to have with creation. The law touched every part of human existence, and as such, following the law was a display of trust in God in every part of human existence. And I believe understanding Paul's view of the law is deeply significant because we too often hear a caricature of Paul's vision of the law. We're told Paul hated the law, but if that were true, why would he use the law to better understand Christ as he does throughout the book of Romans? This brings us to verse 5. Moses, the guy who first received the law, Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. And this is a reference to Leviticus, where Moses is imploring his fellow Hebrews to follow the law so that they may partake in God's plan. Most of Paul's letter to the Romans is spent imploring his fellow Christians to follow the gospel of Christ so that they may partake in God's plan. So we have two kinds of righteousness. The kind that comes from the law, mentioned in verse 5, and we have the kind that comes from faith in verse 6. Righteousness from the law, righteousness from faith. And let's look closer at this comparison. Righteousness that comes from the law implies first that righteousness can come from the law. And that might sound strange coming out of Paul's mouth, but 
here's what he means. The law was given so that Israel could learn to trust in God. Their trust was exemplified through obedience, obedience to the law. In the Greek, the same word that is used for trust is used also for belief by Paul. So we might also say that Israel's belief in God was exemplified through their obedience to the law. For Paul, the law is a tutor who is less concerned with teaching its pupil the right or wrong answers and more concerned with teaching its pupil who God is, what God expects from us, how we treat creation. So the law teaches that God is holy, he is undefiled, he is set apart from the filth of sin. God is just, God is fair and mindful of those in need. God is concerned with the everyday affairs of his children, the order of his creation, and the spirituality of his people. The law is all-consuming because God is all-consuming. So if the strength of the law is its ability to communicate who God is, its weakness is its ability to communicate what sin is. Several times in Romans, Paul speaks to the idea that he didn't know sin until he first knew the law. In being told what not to do, he gained consciousness that he had the choice to do those forbidden acts. So Paul's view of the law is that its primary usefulness is providing an opportunity for obedience. It just so happens that obedience to the law yields other benefits. But one is not supposed to ritualize obedience to the law because the the minute obedience to the God is replaced with obedience to the law, the law has become an idol. It is no longer useful in teaching us about God. Instead, the benefits conferred for obedience to God are confused with obedience to the law. We begin to believe that our own obedience to the law, which is ultimately a reflection of our own performance, our own good works, is the reason we are benefiting. If Paul has any negative feelings about the law, it has more to do with its status as an idol among some people. He's not given up on the idea that God made it as a source for righteousness. So now we can understand what Paul means by the righteousness that comes from the law. Let's introduce the other side of this comparison in verse 6. Verse 6 says, But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And there are many interpretations of this scripture. Paul might be saying, the righteousness to which you are called is not so unattainable as the peak of a mountain or the depth of the sea. Following Christ does not require you to cause his incarnation or produce his resurrection. Paul pointedly asks, What does the righteousness that comes from faith say? And funny enough, it says exactly what Moses said about the law in Deuteronomy 30, 14. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. So what Moses said about the law, Paul now says about the gospel. Namely, that it cannot be found in the heights of splendor, 
the depths of despair, that it cannot be found outside of you at all. It is in your mouth, and it is in your heart. In other words, the righteousness of God comes from our believing and our witnessing. Verse 9, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart, leading to righteousness, and one confesses with the mouth, leading to salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is in our mouth and in our heart. It is the source of our belief and the source of our righteousness. And finally, we arrive at the inflection point of Paul's argument in verse 11. The scripture says, no one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news for Paul's Israelite brothers and sisters? Yes. Is the righteousness that comes from faith available to them? Yes. Is there anyone in all creation beyond the reach of God's love? No. So let us return to the question, is the gospel of Jesus Christ good news for everyone? No, it's not. If you want to earn God's favor, the gospel's bad news. If you believe God should be a part of some areas of your life and not others, the gospel's bad news. And if, like the rich young ruler, you enjoy your life too much to follow God's call, the gospel is very bad news. The gospel of Christ, Paul tells us, does what the law could not do. Whereas the law was impotent to redeem our hopelessly sinful world, Christ could not sit idly by. Rather than enjoy the splendor of heaven, he took on the flesh of a poor man. He faced hunger and illness and heartbreak. He proclaimed good news to the poor. He proclaimed freedom to prisoners. He, he recovered sight for the blind. He set the oppressed free. His teachings were not good news for the political and religious rulers of his day. Jesus does what the law could not do. The law prohibited greed. It prohibited corruption and abuse. But in Jesus, God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he is sent away empty. The law has told us what sin is, but Jesus is dealing with the sinners. He's calling us to repentance, to life. The gospel of Christ is not good news for some of us today because we, like the reader of Paul's letter, worry that we may not be included in those Jesus came to save. We might be on the other side of the equation. We are too comfortable to want Jesus to change the world. We're too used to our sin and the cheap grace that we use to forgive ourselves. We don't want our abuse, our greed, and our passivity to be revealed in Christ's light. The gospel is terrifying because it will reveal that we never really knew Jesus to begin with. And so how could we possibly share this terrifying gospel with our neighbors, especially when we know it may not come to them as good news? How many of us bite our tongues when we should be sharing the gospel because we're afraid of looking like hypocrites. We fear that our behavior does not live up to the standard Jesus calls us to. Under the scrutiny of a stranger, 
does my life reflect what I believe about the gospel? At this point, we are nearing the proper level of humility required for sharing the gospel with our neighbor. The posture of an evangelist is always lower than the person to whom they speak. We come as those saved, not saviors. We Gentiles come as heirs to the new covenant, which came after the old covenant. We are invited guests in the house of God who borrow even our holy scripture from our spiritual brothers and sisters. How do we share the gospel of Christ? Humbly, reverently, with sensitivity, honestly and authentically, with the knowledge that it will not come as good news to some, at least not at first. With the knowledge that we may still struggle to find the good news at times. Most of all, we share the gospel of Christ with an eye toward what Christ has done on our behalf and not what we have done. In 1966, our former pastor, David Reed, preached on this very text and took up the same question. Maybe some of you were there and will remember. And though so much has changed since then, I believe his advice holds true for us today. He writes, How do you confess with your lips in the world in which you move? I would simply suggest that it does not mean yakking about your religion in season and out of season, or buttonholing your colleagues with impertinent questions about their state of grace. But it surely does mean that when the occasion arises, and it does more frequently than we think, you should not be afraid to declare where you stand. Confessing that Jesus is Lord does not necessarily mean saying so in so many words. It means making clear in word and action who it is you are trying to follow and serve. This will appear in your words not simply about him, but about other people about the moral and social issues of our day, and about the ethical questions that come your way. The faith in our heart is translated on our lips in strange and unexpected ways. A chance remark at a party, something said or not said at a critical moment, a timely no or surprising yes, and our confession is there one way or the other. At such a point, you and I are in this together. For often what a preacher says when he is, so to speak, off-duty, says more than all his words from the pulpit. The faith in our hearts is translated on our lips in strange and unexpected ways. I don't know when you will next have the opportunity to speak about your faith, but when that time comes, I encourage you to share the love that you have received. The world is overrun with bad news. Bad news is easy. Good news is hard. But you are a people defined by the good news. Paul summarizes our challenge this way, but how are they to call on one whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in one whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Amen.